Good morning. All right, let's do that one more time. Good morning. morning. (laughs) You're not the early crowd. You are the late crowd, right? And you have not entered into the food coma yet, okay? So I need you to be with me. Stay with me. Last week, we started a series called Hallelujah. And the way we started that was really defining the word, giving you a definition and understanding and practical application for what the word really means. Because we will say that word, and if you grew up in church, you heard that word, and it kind of became cliche, and so it lost its meaning and the connotation of, of what it truly uh, meant and the impact that it has and the application it has for our lives. And so we're going to go back there at the beginning of today to kind of give us a brief overview of what the word hallelujah means and what it what it means to us specifically as believers. And so the word is broken up, or it's a combination of two Hebrew words. The first one, hallelujah, which means to praise. And then the second one is y'all, which is short for Yahweh. And that's important in their day. That's important in our day because all of us praise something. We give honor to, we give our time, our value, our, our worth. We ascribe worth to certain things. But in this instant, the hallelujah, the praise that we give is not to our finances, to our cars, or to our spouses. The praise that we give is to y'all and Yahweh and that is the God, the God of the universe who created everything, the stars in the sky, the breath inside of our bodies. And this is the one we give our praise and our honor and our glory to. And that's simply what the word means is to praise Yahweh with all of our lives. And this is, this is a God who is a great God, but a God who wants to be known because Yahweh is the name that he gave to himself. It's not a name that we gave him. He said, this is who I am. I am Yahweh. It's a personal name that he wanted us to know us by and that he wanted us to communicate with him with. And so he transfers that to us and gives that to us beginning with Moses in Exodus chapter three. And when Moses goes to the people of Israel, this is what God says to him. He says, I am Yahweh, the God of your fathers, that I have sent me to you, and this is my name forever. So God says, this is how you refer to me. This is how you respond to me, that you and I are on first name basis, that you revere me, you honor me, you should have all of me, but at the same time, I want to be known by you, and I want you to know me, and so this is the name through which you can enter into and communicate to me with. And that name is also special because it's not just a combination of two words, that name actually has meaning and grit to it because it's connected to a Hebrew verb which simply means I am. It's just the idea of being, of existing. And so God says, nobody brought me into being. I am, I have been forever. Whatever you need, whatever you long for, whatever you hope for, whatever you thought should be in a God, all of the good things that should be in someone who would create you and rule over you and be sovereign over all the things of life, God says, this is me, I am, which is what he had told Moses in verse 14 of chapter three. He says, this is who I am. I am who I am. And there's no question about it. There's no controversy. This is simply me, and I wasn't thought up by human cunning design. I am because I have been forever. I have existed through all time, which means I am great. I am powerful. I am majestic because nobody could create me. I'm the greatest being that has ever existed and will ever exist. But at the same time, I'm not a distant, proper name. I'm not this powerful, mighty God that you cannot know because all other religions worship gods they simply cannot know personally. And so God gives us the name Yahweh. He wraps his might and his power in this personal name to which we can refer to him by and and talk to him through. And so God says, I am great, I'm powerful, I'm almighty, and at the same time, I'm Yahweh, and I am personable and intimate and knowable, and I want you to know me. And so when we come and we lift a hallelujah, when we sing praise to God through our lives and through our songs, we're praising him because of his might and his power. We say there's nothing else, there's no one else higher than you, more powerful than you, more majestic than you. 
There's nobody else who has the strength or this, this power and this mind, this thought process. There's no one who could do what you have done. But at the same time, we come to him and we sing to him in moments of intimacy and humility and vulnerability and say, God, I need you in this moment. I have nowhere else to turn. And I know you're powerful. I know you're off running the world and you're making everything into the micro level. You're making everything exist and sustain. But in this moment, God, I need you. And I'm going to sing my hallelujah. I'm going to lift my praise to you because I have no one else to turn to in this moment. And so we come before God and we sing with power and might because of his greatness. But we come before God on our knees and our faces in humility to say, God, I need you. And you told me I could know you personally and intimately. And I need you in this moment. And so we saw last week Jehoshaphat, one of the kings of Judah. And they didn't have very many good kings, but he was one of the good kings of Judah. And he experienced this moment in his life where he was outnumbered literally by the enemy, probably the first time in his professional and spiritual uh, and leadership life that he was overwhelmed and outnumbered by the enemy. And he didn't know what to do. He had no other person to turn to. He'd never experienced this before. And so he got on his face and called the people to a fast and a prayer. And they bowed down before God. And he uttered these words. He says, God, we are overwhelmed and we do not know what to do. The only thing that we can do is keep our eyes on you. That's all I have. That's all I have left. Because I know that you're powerful and you're great. And I know you care for me and you care for your people. So all I can do is put my eyes on you. And I'm just going to keep singing. I'm going to keep raising my hallelujah. I'm going to keep praising you. Even when my circumstances say I should not. Even when I don't have anything to sing about, I will sing because of your greatness. Even though my circumstances say you should not be happy or joyful in this moment, I will keep praising you because of your intimacy and because of your love for me. And this week we get to see King David, one of the ones we referenced last week. The greatest king Israel ever had, even though his life was full of Jerry Springer moments. Like every turn he just messed up and messed up his family and made wrong decisions, but he had a heart for God and he was the greatest king they ever had. Today we get a chance to see him in 2 Samuel chapter 6, kind of re-experience what it meant to actually be in the presence of God. And you would have thought that this king who is the greatest king that Israel had ever known, the greatest man that aside from Jesus had walked the planet leading this group of people, you would have thought he would never ever lose sight of what it means to be in the presence of God because he knows this Yahweh. He grew up hearing about Yahweh. He knew that this is the one who is powerful and mighty above all other gods and all other religions. You would have thought he would never have lost focus on walking with and being in the presence of God, but he did. He didn't just lose it. He actually turned it away and pushed it away. And so this morning, I don't know where you're at, I don't know what you're going through, where your heart is, the condition of your relationship with God, but I know in this moment, in this passage, in this moment of history in David's life, you and I can relate because we have been here. And I hope that through this time together, God would call us back into his presence. That above anything and everything else, that's the one thing that you and I desire and cannot live and be without. And so let's look at his story in 2 Samuel chapter 6, starting in verse 1 and 2. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God. Now, a lot of us, whether you grew up in church or not, we know what the Ark of the Covenant is thanks to Indiana Jones. 
right? So we understand a little bit of what the ark is. It's this box in which these holy things were kept. There are certain things that were put in there that were captive for the nation of Israel to remember how their God had moved on their behalf and it was a reminder of who he was. And so we know that because of Harrison Ford. We thank Harrison Ford for giving us a little bit of biblical history. But what happened in this, this sense that it wasn't just this box and it wasn't just a few articles that were kept in this piece of wood or these, these things of gold. What the Ark of the Covenant represented was the presence of God with his people that he was walking with, he was abiding with and living with them. It was him walking alongside his people through the journey and the difficult moments and the mountaintops and all the battles and all the experiences. But it wasn't just a symbol. It wasn't just something that sat on top of the box. It was literally God manifesting himself in a special way. And manifesting is really just taking something that's on the inside or invisible and making it visible. It was tangible. It was the tangible presence of God because of his name, because of his personal relationship he wants to have with his creation. God said, I will manifest my presence in your life. I want to be with you. I'm not distant like all the other gods of all the other religions. And so God designed for him to be able to be with and to walk with his people. The problem is, because his people decided to walk away from him from time to time, the Ark of the Covenant left the people of Israel. And again, it wasn't a symbol, it wasn't just a box. It was the actual presence of God distanced from his people. And the Philistines, which are one of the arch enemies of Israel and God, over time battled with Israel and David and the people of God. And over time, they would take and they would remove the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God would leave the people of God. And in this moment, David goes to battle with the Philistines and twice in the recent past history from 2 Samuel chapter 6, he has defeated these Philistines and finally, the Ark of the Covenant is coming back into possession with the people. They're finally able to be in the presence of God. And so David is planning for its return back to Jerusalem, which was their capital city, their socioeconomic capital, and their spiritual capital. So he was planning and excited to bring the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, back to his people, which we see in verse five of chapter six. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And if you're a Church of Christ friend, just don't read this verse, okay? I'm kidding, kind of. So the people of God realized that they had gained possession of the Ark of the Covenant again. And David was preparing to put it back in the center of their history and back in the center of their natural everyday life. It was going to take precedence once again. The Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God was where it was designed and planned to be in the heart of Israel. And the people were excited. I mean, really excited. They were joyful because they knew when they were around and with the presence of God, everything changed. Joy, peace, hope, power which led to worship when they gathered together because they knew they were coming into the presence of God they shook loudly they sang loudly they took tambourines and it was the 70s again and everybody could play an instrument right and they were so excited to be in the presence of God you know how many times we're excited to be in the presence of God together about three times a year Easter and the two days we go surf This room is electric on those three days. And other days, it's a little bit like today. I'm gonna get another call from my mama. It's like when you walked in, somebody handed you a box of lemons. And unfortunately, it's not just in this building, it's in a lot of buildings. And we we come into the presence of God and we have no expectation. There's this guy gonna preach at me for 35 minutes. He might yell some, he might whisper some. I might fall asleep some. 
There might be this band and they're going to play probably louder than I want them to. The people of Israel knew what it meant to be in the presence of God. And they were excited. They came expecting, waiting. I'm gathering together with all of these people for us to see and be a part of being with and walking with God. And that's what makes this place special. That's what makes the church special. Because some of us come into this place and you say, my hallelujah is broken. I've had a week. I've had a month. I've had a season where I just cannot raise my hallelujah because of my circumstance. I know God will overcome, but in this moment, my heart's broken. And I need my brother or I need my friend or I need somebody in my aisle to say, I'm going to raise your hallelujah for you. I'm going to be here and you can lean on me because I know and you know ultimately that God can overcome all things and he knows you personally and wants to walk with you. And so I'm going to just raise your arms. I'm going to raise your hallelujah for you. And I'm going to bring the presence of God because the Holy Spirit exists inside of me. That's what makes this place special. And some of us, we do. We come in a couple weeks a year and we just have nothing. We're just spent. We're broken. But it can't be 49 a year. And that cannot be consistent with believers of God. That we walk into this place, ho-hum, humdrum, well, this is what we do every single week. Stay home. Watch it online. Or don't. Do something else with your time. And we, we cannot lose the joy and the awe of experiencing God together. Because the Holy Spirit is in us. We bring with us Christ and the Holy Spirit, because he exists, Paul tells us, Christ is in you. The New Testament testifies that the Holy Spirit is in us, which is the power of God, the greatness of God, and the vulnerability and the humility of God to know us and to walk with us and be intimate with us. We gather together, we should be like the Israelites and singing joy and song and praise. But we don't. I'm not saying we should be running aisles and stuff. That's different. (laughs) We love them too. As long as they love Jesus, we love everybody. And look, I'm not going to pick on Church of Christ, Church of God, and lead Baptists out later in this passage. They all gathered together and ate and went, on, went home their separate ways. Okay? So this passage has all different denominations. But we can't. See, honestly, I mean, this is just me, friend to friend, talking to you. This is outside of trying to present well. We, we can't. Because you, you think about somebody walking in. That's broken. And they, maybe they don't even have a hallelujah because they don't have a God to praise. They don't, they don't even have a broken hallelujah. They got nothing. They're searching. They're looking. They walk into this lemon stand. They're walking back out because there's no joy. There's no peace. There's no hope sometimes. I don't mean individually, and I'm not saying everybody has to express it outwardly, because look, churches get in, in trouble with that, and they think we have to create this big, huge experience where there's lights and power, and everybody's yelling and screaming. Look, that, sometimes that's awesome, and that's great, and God moves that way. I'm just saying if we try to create that every single week, it's like cotton candy and sugar. It disappears after 20 minutes. I'm talking about a substantive walk with God, meeting with God. I could feel the thickness of the air that we were in the presence of God together because we came expecting, waiting, hoping, and all I could do, and the only thing I could do was lift and praise the holy name of God. And sometimes I get it, we can't because we're broken, but we need somebody there to do it with us and for us. And so these people were excited because the presence of God was coming back into their midst. In verse six and seven, we see the, the action of the transportation from that city to Jerusalem. 
And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacum, Uzzah, which is one of the men ready there to prepare for the transportation, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumble. The oxen that were pulling this, they started to stumble. He reached out his hand and grabbed it. And when he did, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error and he died there beside the ark of God. You're like, well, hold on just a second. (laughs) We're excited because the presence of God is coming with us and this man is a part of the transportation and and the oxen stumble and the ark begins to fall and he reaches out his hand to try to protect the presence of God and God kills him for it. That makes no sense. The problem is he was in direct violation of God's law and rule and command. Because if you go back to Numbers chapter 4 and verse 15, it says that these are the holy things of God and we are not to touch those holy things because they are reverent. They are other than, they're different than us. And if we reach out and touch those things and take them as our own, sometimes as a possession, then we will die and he would die in this moment. So he was in direct violation of God. But you and I would say, that seems like an honest mistake. We would just natural reflex, we would just reach out and grab it if it was starting to stumble. And the problem isn't necessarily you say, well, God's just mad at me for reaching out to his presence. That's really not the issue. That's just a result of something deeper that happened before. And what happened before was the way that they chose to transport the ark from one place to the other. See, if you read the story, you remember back in chapter 6, verse 3, this is what it says, and they carried the ark on a new cart. So they prepared this cart, and this cart really was prepared by the Philistines who were not believers of God, and they sent the ark back to the people of Israel. It's like, we don't want it anymore. We don't understand it. This is too powerful for us. We don't want this thing. And so they sent it back to him, and they decide they're going to have oxen pull this cart. That wasn't the way God designed for his presence to be moved among his people. It was set up and established that the spiritual people of God, the spiritual leaders, the Levites, would put poles through the rings of the ark and they would carry the presence of God. They would physically put themselves into the process and they would sacrifice themselves to carry the weight of the presence of God. And instead, they said, let's let all the oxen do the work. Let's just sit back and let's let God be taken care of by somebody else. God said, that's not, that's not how it works. I want you to be in relationship with me. I want you to be in my presence. I want you to honor me, to respect me, that you would sacrifice, that you would do something to be with me and walk with me. And they said, no, we'll just let the oxen do it. We'll just sit back. We'll let everybody else praise God. We'll just, we'll just come up with our own plan. We'll just say, it's really not a big deal. We'll just let these things take care of it. And, and look, God doesn't need us to praise him because all of creation is going to praise him and does praise him. Psalms tells us over and over, the sky and the stars and the rocks and the trees, everything will lift and praise the glory of God. But he calls us and asks us to be a part of it and wants us to be in it and carry the weight of his presence because we know the glory of it. And the problem is, David and the Israelites were just kind of flippant. Oh, look, it's a box. Let's let the ox carry it back. And I think sometimes that's the way we enter into the presence of God. That's not a big deal. We'll just come up with our own plan. Let's just do it this way. Let's not put any effort or any sacrifice into it. And let's just, let's just do this. I got a plan for how I think things should work. God, I don't need your plan. I know you said that we should put pulse to it and the spiritual leaders should carry it and this is how we transport the presence of God and we should honor it and we should respect it. We should have reverence and awe for it. But it's really not a big deal. We can move it like we move our grain. We can move it like we move everything else that we have. We can just put it on a, a trailer and we can just hook a, an ox up to it and they can just carry it. 
God says, no, I want you to be with it. I want you to be part of me. I want you to be in my presence and be active in walking alongside of me. And David said, God, it's, it's not a big deal. It's not worth it. And so God says, well, it is. And I have commanded you to do it this way, not because I want to put my thumb on you or tell you how to live life. It's because I know how to live life best and I want you to learn to trust me. I don't want you to come up with your own plan. But we do every single time, whatever circumstance, whatever. God, look, listen, hold on, sit down a second. I I got an idea. And I just want you to rubber stamp it. Hey, I got this plan. I'm gonna get this ox. We're gonna put it on a trailer. It'll be easy. Like nobody has to lift a finger. As soon as we get it on there, we just sit back and we just watch. Hey, God, I'm gonna do it this way. I know you called me to do this and sacrifice in this area, but I think this is a better way to do life and a better way to go about my job and a better way to go about my relationship. I just need you to be okay with that. And if you're not, I just need you to turn a blind eye for a moment so I can do what I want. And God says, it's not how this works because I am higher and greater than you. I have might and power and majesty, but I love you enough to give you a personal name and a relationship with me so that I can help walk with you to teach you the best way to live life. And so then verse eight, David wasn't very happy with God over this. Verse eight, David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And he experiences another emotion at the same time. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing anymore. He was not willing to transport this to Jerusalem, to the city of David. He said, I don't want it anymore. And David was at the very same time angry with God and afraid of God. David was ticked off, God, because you didn't come through in my plan. You didn't follow through in what I desired and what I wanted. I was hoping you would just tell me, yes, that's a great plan, David. I would have never thought of that on my own. I'm so glad you're here. And David was mad at God. How dare God do what God said he's going to do? How dare God have a plan for my life and a plan the way we should walk with him and experience his presence? At the very same time, he was afraid of God because he knew the reverence and the awe and the majesty and the might But we find ourselves in that place questioning God and afraid of him at the very same time. We're angry with God because he didn't do what we wanted to, but at the same time, we know that his plan for our life is better than anything we could ever dream up. And David in this moment did what you and I do. Sometimes we just don't verbalize it this way. David said, I don't want the presence of God if that's what it's gonna be. I don't want God's move in my life if I have to sacrifice and do that. I don't want God's plan for my marriage if that's what I have to do. I don't want God's move in my jobs if that's the way I have to act. I just don't want it. I don't want it anymore. Take it from me, remove it from me, send it away because I want to live my life. I want to live my plan. And God, if this is what you want from me, I don't want it, which means I don't want you. And so the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, moved away from Jerusalem as it was headed that direction and went to another place. In verse 10, through 12, it tells us about the place it went. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the, the Gittite. Well, that's, that's a cool name, right? Obed-Edom sounds like a Star Wars character. So Obed-Edom receives the Ark of the Covenant and remained in his house, in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And while it was there, the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And so it was told to David, hey, you remember the Ark of the Covenant? It's not just a symbol, not just a cross. It's not just a box, but it's the actual presence of God walking with his people. It went to Obed-Edom's house. And oh, by the way, guess what went with it? The blessings of God went with it as well. Because the Ark of the Covenant was living and residing there. You see, where God is honored, he brings blessing. 
And I don't mean prosperity in the sense of physical ways and bigger house and bigger cars, and sometimes he does. But the true blessing is simply just being with and walking with God, having the peace of knowing that he is powerful enough to handle your situation and vulnerable and intimate enough to walk you through it step by step. And so David hears he sent the presence of God away, and he hears that someone else is experiencing blessing because the presence of God, he just had to watch it from a distance. He saw somebody else experience the blessing of God. And he had to sit back from his house wondering, why in the world is this not happening to me? I'm the leader of Israel after all. I'm the one who defeated the Philistines. I'm the one who said we should get the ark back to begin with. Why in the world is somebody else experiencing blessing? Why don't I get to experience the presence of God? And unfortunately, David's not alone. Research tells us that you and I experience these very same things. There's a group called Barna Research Group, and they're one of the leading, probably the leading uh, research group in, in all of Christianity and all of religion. So they did this study years ago that said, out of all church attenders, regular church attenders, not people who just show up every now and then, but out of all the people who attend church regularly, only half admit to experiencing the presence of God in a worship gathering in the past year. And one-third out of all people attending church regularly have ever or say they've never experienced the presence of God in a worship gathering. One-third, 33% of people who sit in rooms like this week after week after week, month after month after month for a lifetime say they've never experienced the presence of God here. It goes on to say that out of all those churchgoers that 44% say they experience God every single week, and 18% say they do kind of on a monthly basis, which means that's 38% that's saying, it's been a long time. It's been a long time since I've entered a room like this, and I truly experienced the presence of God. Now, at first glance, you say, well, you know, services are sometimes they're kind of boring, you know, and it's kind of we do the same thing all the time and sing some songs, and I really don't like to sing, and, you know, you preach too long, you're long-winded, and like to hear yourself talk, and I don't really jive with that. You know, I, I get it. That's, that's the first line of defense. But we're not talking about designing a better worship service. Again, that's where we get in trouble as churches. If we can just make this happen and look like this, and if we can just have this, then everybody's going to be happy, and everybody's going to leave all fired up. And the goal is not leaving all fired up. The goal is leaving changed because we are in the presence of God that goes with us everywhere we go. And so what we've done is we've tried to change our outward behavior. If I can just look like this and act like this and talk like this. And what we haven't done is submitted ourselves to God's plan and rule for life. And said, God, I need you to change me on the inside. I need you to take my anger and take my pride I need you to remove the lust because none of the filters will ever do it for me. I need you to change and shape my heart. I need to submit to you and trust you that whatever plan you have for life, it's what's best for me. We have to get to a place where we honor and we revere God. We're in awe of who he is and then we will experience the blessing of God because we're in the presence of God. And what we need to know is the favor of the Lord will never rest where God is not honored. You will not receive blessing And we will not receive favor where we do not honor God. And I don't mean just with our lips. I mean with all of our lives that we say, I trust you, whatever you want, whatever you want to do, whatever you desire from me, God, this is what I want and this is what I desire as well. And I want you to change my heart. And the problem is David did not properly honor the Lord. 
And so because he did not honor the Lord, he had to watch someone else receive the blessing of God because they were willing to receive and be in and walk in the presence of God. And maybe you've been there, maybe you're there right now. All of us have been there in seasons. We just pushed aside his presence and said, I don't want it, I don't need it, it's too hard, it costs me too much. And sometimes when we get to that point, we realize the one thing we sent away is the only thing that will change us. And we take off running back toward it. That's called repentance. We simply turn and run the other way and we realize whatever path we diverted on, whatever avenue we went down, the path of life we chose, we realize it will not fulfill and satisfy us like we thought. And we turn around and we go the other way and we say, God, I want you. I want to submit to you. I want to honor you. I want to be in your presence and I want you to fill and change my heart, not just the outward appearance. And I don't want to show and I don't want an experience. I want something deep and meaningful. So walking with you is the only thing that I desire. That's exactly what David did in verse 12. So David, after three months, David went up and he brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who were there, watch this, I want you to see the change. Over these next verses, I want you to see the difference because the first time David said, I'm going to do it my way. God, I'm going to transport you. I'm going I'm to deal with your presence however I desire, whatever I plan for. And I want you to watch this time when he repented and said, God, I want you to change my heart. I don't want just your blessing. I want your presence. When the people went, they bore the ark of the Lord, which meant they carried the ark of the covenant. They carried the presence of God. They treated it with honor and respect and followed his plan for life. And when those were carrying it, they'd gone six steps and he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal, which says, God, I come before you. I know I have nothing, but I'm bringing this to say, I honor you. There is nothing else that I can do without you. And I'm lifting you up above all things. I'm going to give of myself so that I can be with you and be in your presence. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And watch this. And David was wearing a linen ephod. And you think, in this moment, David came before the Lord physically present and changed and ready to meet with God. This is where we get our Sunday best. But what David here was not wearing was his Sunday best. His wife later complains in the passage that he didn't have his royal robes on came before God simply in a white linen like the priest that says I have nothing to bring to you I have nothing of value in myself God I'm going to honor you and say I'm not bringing my plans I'm not bringing my thoughts I'm not bringing my will I'm submitting to you I'm getting on my face and on my knees before you and saying God all I have is you I am ready to be in your presence and I am ready to meet with you and when they did so David in verse 15 so David and all the house of Israel brought up the, Lord of God, the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of a horn. They were excited, ready to receive this back. David raced back to Obed-Edom's house and says, I gotta have it. I gotta have the presence of God. I know the first time, God, I did it on my terms and I did it my way and it didn't work out for me. God, I'm ready. Whatever you want, whatever you desire, I'm laying my life before you. I'll do whatever you ask of me. I just simply wanna be in your presence and I'll do it on your terms this time. I'm gonna come before you and ask that you would move in my heart and you would change me because the only thing that I need in life, the only thing I desire is simply to be in your presence. And when David decided to do things God's way, the whole house of Israel changed. The whole house began worshiping together again because they knew that was the most important thing they could ever have in life. And maybe this morning you say, where's mine? Where's my hallelujah? Because I don't have it. I don't have anything. 
I don't have anything to offer God. I don't have anything to bring God. I don't have anything to praise him for. I don't have a hallelujah. And maybe the reason you don't have a hallelujah is because like David, you sent his presence away. And you thought you could get the physical, external blessings of God without the presence of God. And he will never reside where his presence does not abide. And you will not receive favor and you will not receive blessing. And we're not talking physical prosperity. But you will not have the peace and the hope and the joy that your heart desires without being with and walking in the presence of God. And then when he brings the ark back into the city, his wife is sitting up in the window looking down at David, undressed, not wearing his royal robes, wearing just a basic linen cloth. And she looks down on him with disdain in verse 16. And his wife, she's referred to as not his wife, but she's referred to as her father's daughter, says that the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. She said, how dare you dance before God in that way? How dare you expose yourself? How dare you sing with joy and excitement? How dare you lift your hallelujah? And maybe today you're wondering where yours is. Michael's like, I don't have a hallelujah. I don't have a reason to praise. And the reason she didn't have a reason to praise is because she didn't have the presence of God. She didn't want to walk with him or submit to him or walk in his ways. And David knew what it meant. He re-experienced what it meant to actually be in his presence and he could not contain himself. This is the only thing I've been looking for. This is the only thing I need. The only thing that will sustain me and bring me peace and hope in my life. And David said, I'll keep on dancing. I'll be even more undignified than this. If you think this is something, you better wait. Because I have the presence of my God with me. And I get a chance to lift and to raise my hallelujah. And so this morning, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to just pray and plead with God. I'm going to ask you just to beg him. Maybe you've sent the presence of God away because of a circumstance in your life. Maybe you just question God's ability to rule over certain situations. You say, God, you just take a seat. I'm going to do it my way for a little bit. And like David, you've realized you have sent the blessing and the favor you have desired a way to live at somebody else's house. And maybe like Michael, his wife, you say, I don't, I don't have a hallelujah. Maybe it's because you don't even know who God is to begin with. So I'm just going to ask you, and, and, and I know you may not want to stand, you may not want to come to the front and pray, you may not want to do whatever Sometimes we do at church, but here's the deal. (laughs) You're not going to have blessing and favor until you exist and live in the presence of God. And I would encourage you, like David, do whatever it takes. No matter what anybody thinks about you, no matter how silly you might look, you do whatever it takes to be in the midst of his presence again. And maybe for the very first time. And maybe you say, I don't want to come to the front. People are going to think I have issues. Look, we all have issues. All of us. You say, well, people are going to know I had a rough week or a rough season. We all have them. Sometimes you need somebody else to lift and to raise a hallelujah because yours is broken. And this is what is the beauty of the house of God. Is that we lift and we encourage one another in those difficult, hard times. In those moments where we have run from God. And we need somebody to help bring us back or pull us back or lift us up. And so I'm going to ask you all to stand for just a minute. We don't do this very often. It may be kind of odd to you. But I'm going to ask you to stand. And I want to pray for you.
specifically for those who say, I, I can't, I don't know how, I have sent the presence of God purposefully or inadvertently, and I, like David, am ready to race back to his presence. I'm going to pray for you in just a second when we start to pray. Some of you, I want you to come down to the front. And it, listen, this is not a measure of success for us. If we have zero or we have 100, that doesn't determine success. Success is what God does and you allow him to do in your heart and allow that change to happen. That's success for us, whether it happens physically in this place or it happens in your car on the way home. Sometimes I just know, like David, we have to abandon all of our concerns and run straight as fast as we can back to the presence of God. So I'm gonna ask everybody to close your eyes for just a second. If you need to be prayed for, if you can make your way to the front, I'm just gonna ask you to. And we'll just wait for you to move. And we just wanna pray for you specifically to say, I need to be in the presence of God again. Father, we come before you in this moment. And some of us in some seasons of life have gotten too busy or too distracted. We've devised or developed our own plan. And we thought, God, you simply don't know my life or know me. God, at some point, all of us come to a realization that the one thing that we drove away is the very thing that we needed. And so, Father, I pray this moment for these specific men and women who've confessed their need for you, who, like David, say, I need to re-experience, to walk with you, to sacrifice, to be with you. I need to honor you and revere you. And I know that the greatest thing in my life is the presence of God. I pray for them specifically. We don't know their situation, their circumstance, or decisions they have made. We just know, like David, all of us are called to repentance. All of us are called to run back to the God who created us and who loves us and wants to bring us into a restored relationship with him. So, Father, we pray for these. We pray for those who didn't have the courage to come or didn't have the ability to come. That, God, we just lift up our hallelujah on their behalf. We praise you because we know that you're the God of the universe and you're the God of all their circumstance. God, you're sovereign over all things. You rule over every single detail of life, every single planet and universe that will ever exist. And, God, we know that you care for them enough to move on their behalf. Father, I pray for this church and this group of people that we would understand what it means to live a life of hallelujah, of praising you, of glorifying you. That, Father, we would not be so busy with our own plans and thoughts for life, but we would honor you and submit to you in those ways. That, God, you would like us bring the house of God together like the people of Israel who could not stop shaking and praising and singing the glory of your name. Father, let this be a house, let this be a a place where the presence of God resides and exists not simply because of the favor and blessing even though we know that it will be present but simply because we just want to be and walk with you so Father this morning let us relearn how to lift our hallelujah to you 
And Father, let us, some of us, not pretend, but to say, I am broken. I cannot raise my hallelujah. God, I want to raise it in the presence of my enemies, but I just can't in this moment. God, I want to raise my hallelujah, but my season is hard and difficult. And I know I need you. I need somebody to lift that hallelujah for me. Father, I pray for these people and for this place that we would be a people in which the presence of God lived and resided. And across the city and country would know the power and the presence of a God who wants to know them and love them and walk along every circumstance of life with them. Father, we thank you for loving us, allowing us to meet with you today. Let us just continue to sing or beg for that song back today. In Christ's name we pray, amen.